Good morning, friends. Happy New Year. Grateful to worship the Lord with you together this morning to reflect on His Word. Ryan, a moment ago, mentioned New Year's resolutions. One article published a couple of days ago listed 65 resolutions that you might want to consider undertaking in this coming year. Here's the first 10. Build a better budget. Practice mindfulness. Cook something new each week. Read more books. Create a cleaning schedule you'll stick to. Drink less alcohol. Make dinner easier. I guess even as you're introducing something new every week. Start meal prepping. I guess that's what makes it easier. Commit to a healthier sleep routine. Join a club. That's just 10. And you know how those stack up. You hear those, and they resonate maybe a little bit in your mind. You think, oh, yeah, I guess I should. It piles up and it piles up. Last summer, I preached through 1 John, and I got to every passage except for the final passage. Uh, Turn to 1 John 5. We'll look at this morning. Where in the final verses, John, the Apostle John, essentially offers us one resolution for this week, for this year, for our Christian lives. And the one resolution he offers us is this. Know that if you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. Know that. I've been writing for five chapters, John says, so that you would know that. That's what I want you to resolve. Know that, saint. You have eternal life. Forget the 65. Know that. You have eternal life. Now, to remind you, or rather maybe somebody else can remind us, kids, uh, do any of you remember what the central problem the book of First John was responding to? Does anybody, maybe especially the teenagers, there was a problem that happened, John's responding to it. Yes? Well, there were false teachers. That's part of it. What's the other part of it? The adults, remember. I'm tempted just to stand here and wait. What was the central problem? Hint, chapter 2, verses 18, 19, anybody? Yes. Well, uh, that's, that's something Paul really struggles with in Galatians. There are false teachers, and they are adding and saying things they shouldn't say. That's true. Lois? Well, there was an antichrist, and what was, what was the antichrist saying, and what was the response? He was saying Jesus had not come in the flesh, or they were saying, and not only that, people were leaving the church. Remember that? That's the central problem. People were 
believing this false teaching and leaving the church. And that left the church asking, wait a second, what's going on here? I thought we were saved and now people are leaving us. And that provokes questions in their minds. Maybe that provokes questions in our minds. Maybe you've known somebody who leaves the faith and that leaves you asking, well, what is, what is Christianity after all if people will come and then go? And, and am I really a Christian? The book of 1 John is fundamentally about assurance, assurance in the faith for the people who have been left behind, right? Some people have left, some have been left behind. John is writing to the ones who have been left behind, and he offers them, as we saw, three basic tests. A truth test, are you believing the right things? A moral test, are you obeying God's commands? And a love test, do you love God? Do you love God? brothers and sisters in the faith. And those of you who remain, that's you. So let me encourage you. That's what he's seeking to do. He's not seeking to undermine their confidence in the faith with these tests, but to affirm it as these people were walking in it. And I trust most of us at some time or another have struggled with assurance in our faith. Maybe you've wondered, am I really a Christian? Adults in the room, you may have wondered, am I really a Christian? kids in the room. You might have asked your mom and dad, do you think I'm a Christian? I've heard that question a number of times. I trust many of you have as well. And so John answers in this letter, and then he closes this letter by saying, I want to assure you of your eternal life in Christ, because you continue to believe, you continue to obey, you continue to love. If, if you have more questions about this, let me recommend Mike McKinley's book, Am I really a Christian? Write that down. Am I really a Christian? And it walks through the book of 1 John, helping you to answer, ask and answer that question if it's one you particularly struggle with. But let's look at this final section where he offers one last set of encouragements concerning their salvation. Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Well, right there in verse 13, he tells us why he wrote this book. And this is the overriding New Year's resolution 
that he means for us to take away from this letter. Look at verse 13 again. I, and I have it at the top, their handout with some, some points, page 8 and 9. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that, here's our purpose, the whole letter, that you may know you have eternal life. As I said, this book is all about assurance. I've written these five chapters so that you, says John, who continue to put your faith in Christ, they have confidence that you're saved and that eternal life has begun in you. That's his message for us this morning, friends. Uh, Shannon and I have a friend who has been a Christian for a couple of decades, but in the last few years, his, he has made some tragic decisions, called into question his very faith. And in turn, it can provoke us to wonder, could this happen to us? Are, are we really Christians? And, and when we see people walk away from the faith, it's good to be humbled and to take stock and to realize, yes, you too can destroy your faith. You can believe the wrong things. You can stop obeying. You can stop loving. And so here we are at the beginning of a new year, looking out at the vista of, of the next 12 months, I think it's good for us to stop and take stock. The world opposes us, opposes our faith, our obediences, our loves. It opposes us from the outside, and yet at the same time, there's some of it on the inside of us still, and that opposes us, doesn't it? Opposes the new man in each of us. Uh, Things that would draw our hearts, our new man away. So John concludes with this final encouragement saying in verse 13 you're still believing and I want you to have confidence that eternal life has begun in you you're sitting here aren't you inconveniently first day of the new year brothers and sisters eternal life has begun in you and then in verses 14 to 20, he lays out three additional assurances of our salvation. Three descriptions, you might say, of what this eternal life in us looks like. Number one, what does eternal life in us look like? Number one, God hears and answers us when we pray according to his will. Look at 13 again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The the promises of eternal life aren't just about the promised duration of our lives. It's about the radically changed nature of our lives beginning even now, which he begins to unpack and explain in verse 14. Verse 14, and this is the confidence, the knowledge that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And then verse 15 essentially says the same thing, restates it. The eternal life that we have, brothers and sisters, is a a confidence that God hears us when we talk to him, that he answers us when we pray according to his will. Uh, People sometimes say that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. That's a bit of a false dichotomy which people use to speak to non-religious, religiously skeptical people. But, but there's certainly truth in the fact that Christianity is a relationship. 
And in a relationship, you talk to people. I can't say I have a relationship with my wife and kids and never talk to them. It kind of says something about our Christian life if we're not spending time in prayer, doesn't it? Christians are in a relationship with God and they talk with God. Prayer is the very essence of religion, said one commentator, and the most direct expression of our faith. Prayer is the very essence of your religion and the direct expression of your faith. Do you have faith? If you have faith, you will talk to God. John's purpose, though, is not to indict their failure to pray. It's to encourage them, again, to say, if you know Christ, you know you can talk to him. And he hears you. He listens to you. One of my kids read this verse this week and asked me, why does he say he only answers if we ask according to our or his will? Does that mean he ignores us when we ask things that aren't according to his will? That, that's a good question. Let's think about that. If, if my kids ask me for something not according to my will, well, do, do I give it to them? Well, no, not ordinarily, and nor does God. Now, that said, sometimes he does. Sometimes he, as the Bible says elsewhere, hands people over to their sin. You want foolishness? Okay, I'll give you foolishness. But what kind of comfort is that? What kind of encouragement would that be? You want ungodliness? You want foolishness? Okay, here, here you go. No, the, the encouragement we have is that ordinarily God does not answer ungodly, foolish requests from His saints. We ask for dumb stuff. Praise God He doesn't give it. It's encouraging to know when we ask according to His will, we ask for the good stuff, the wise stuff. God's like, okay, let's do that. I'll grant that, right? Let's think about your prayer life. Let's think about our prayer lives for a moment. Are we praying? Are you praying as an individual? Are you praying as a family? Are we praying as a church? I, I certainly know that we as a church are. You'll notice that every Sunday we do a prayer of praise, a, a prayer of intercession. We call it a pastoral prayer and we do a prayer of confession. And I think it's crucial that we as a congregation learn and to think and to pray in each one of those categories so that we as individuals might also emulate those different categories. And therefore, I'd be encouraging you to listen very carefully to what the things that are prayed for. One sister uh, just this last week said to me that she's learning to pray as she hears the church prayers as we pray together. I hope you're not just tuning out when we pray as a church, but you're listening and learning and praying those same kinds of things, right? We praise God as rehearsals for what we're going to do in all eternity. All eternity, we were created for praise. That doesn't mean that eternity in heaven with God, which we even sang about this morning and I will glory in my Redeemer. That's not to say eternity is one long church service in which we're singing the hymns over and over, especially the fourth stanza, kind of infinitely. 
No, it means that whatever we go about doing, whatever we do in eternity, and I do think that'll be work and continuing to bring dominion to the earth, that means we're going to be continually doing it in a posture, praise, right? And so when we praise God together in the morning, as Ryan led us this morning, we're practicing that. What is that heart posture? And, and then we turn to ask him for things, right? We we. We ask him for stuff we need. Give us our day, this day our daily bread. Uh, we, we pray for ourselves as individuals. We pray for uh, things like pregnancies and health considerations. Uh, we also pray for our holiness. I, I prayed just a moment ago through different points of the sermon for all of us. But we also remember we're not just praying for ourselves. We're praying for other churches, other Christians, other nations, right? And believers working there. And hopefully that's increasingly characterizes your own prayer life. That's, that's one of the goals in all of that. And then, of course, we confess our sins. How many of you have the little book, Valley of Vision? Raise your hand. How many of you have that? Maybe a third to half of you. That is a great little book to order on Amazon this afternoon, a Valley of Vision. Many prayers of praise, but especially confession. Those are good things for you to be praying and leading your family in prayer together. And we all want to grow in our prayer lives. I want to grow in my prayer life. I trust you do too. That's one of my goals for 2023. And the encouragement that this verse offers again, as I say, is that God hears us. He listens as we pray. And how many, how many prayers has God answered in your life? That'd be a great exercise this afternoon to sit with your family or just even by yourself and recount some of the prayers over this last year that God has answered. Uh, new life he's given, sickness he's taken away, uh, friends, family members he's saved, job opportunities, growth and grace in your own life, or your spouse's life. How many prayers can you stop and look back and see that God has answered? Friends, let's continue to pray, ask, and to praise, and to confess. As Jesus put it, our Father is not an unkind Father who gives a snake when we ask for a fish or a stone when we ask for a loaf of bread. He is a good Father who loves to give good, give good gifts to His children. Let's be a congregation of prayer, individually, together. Uh, this promise of prayer and about prayer that he hears us leads us to a second assurance of salvation and the eternal life that we have, which should buttress our confidence. Number two, God rescues our brothers and sisters from sin when we ask him. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. Now, the Roman Catholic Church uses this verse to make a distinction between mortal sins and what it calls venial sins. Mortal sins are those sins which are particularly grave. And it lists in the Catholic Catechism things like sexual immorality and murder, stealing, and so forth. And these are the sins that would damn you, according to its teaching, 
if you do not repent. Venial sins, on the other hand, are often done in ignorance. They're not as serious. They're not damning. It's as if God looks at them and says, eh, I know you didn't mean to. And so he forgives. Venial means if you fail to ask for it. Now, the Roman Catholic Church is right to see two categories of sin in this verse, but I think they're misunderstanding the distinction. John isn't giving us two categories, and he's thinking, okay, those sins belong in this category, and those sins belong in that category. That's not how he is dividing things up. These are the really bad ones. These are the less bad ones. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They ate a piece of fruit. In and of itself, not really a big deal, right? And yet, because it was in defiance of God's law, as all sin is, it brought death. Death even to all humanity. So what is, what is John talking about? Well, he's not introducing a new idea in the context of this letter. It's not like, I've been talking about all these other things, and now let me throw in this really strange theological distinction between mortal sins and venial sins. No, you just got to read it in the context of the whole letter. You have a group of people who have left the church. They no longer believe Christ has come in the flesh. They're no longer obeying God's commands. They're no longer loving the church, the, the people of God. They failed, you might say, the belief tests, the moral test, the love test. They've abandoned to the faith. That is the sin that leads to death. To walk away. To harden your heart and to say, nope, not me anymore. Not mine anymore. And notice then what John says about such sin at the end of verse 16. I do not say that one should pray for that. What does he mean by that? He could just be saying, well, that, that's, that's not what I'm talking about here. That's not my concern here. Or maybe he's also saying, their hearts are hard. As Jesus put it, it's time to wipe the dust off your sandals and leave. God is handing them over. Well, you can pray, but the die is cast. Now, when does that point come in a person's life when they walk? I don't know. I know I don't want to find out. And I know I don't want any of you to find out. And you don't want to find each other to find out. And so we pray for one another that God would keep us, which is exactly what he is calling us to do. Because there is a sin that doesn't lead to death, he said. Well, which sins are these? Well, these are any sins that we confess and, and turn away from. We, we learned this back in chapter 1. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay, so we're continuing to sin. And if, if you say, I'm done with sinning, you're self-deceived. The truth is not in you, he says. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to 
forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We sin or to confess that sin and to know that God forgives us. And so the lesson for us in verses 16 and 17 is pretty simple. If anyone sees his brother or sister sinning, committing a sin, ask God to bring him or her to repentance and to restore him. Why did you join a church? One of the reasons you join a church is to commit yourself to praying for other brothers and sisters that they might not sin and that when they do sin, they would be restored. That is what church membership, that is what Christianity is all about. We're going to see each other sin, believe it or not. And our job is to then pray for one another in that sin, that we would be preserved through righteousness. That doesn't mean we can ignore everything else the Bible says about not judging. That doesn't mean we can ignore what Jesus says about removing the plank from my own eye before I try to remove the speck from the brother's eye, those verses also still apply. These verses do mean that when you see your brother or sister sin, you care, you mourn. When a, when a family member is making a hash of their lives, you, you, you care about that family member. And brothers and sisters, we are family members together. We care, we pray for one another. We don't take the path to sin and that we are preserved in righteousness. And in my own life, most often, this looks like praying for use by name uh, for things like uh, idolatry. Look, look at verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I pray for you by name that the Lord would keep you from idolatry. I pray that he would keep you from pride, covetousness, and adultery. I I know all the elders pray for you in that way, and I trust many of you are praying for one another in that way. John's goal is not to get us to start making assumptions about one another's hearts and motives. Oh, Lord, I can tell. Looking at Brent, he looks awfully proud. No, that, that, that's, that, that's not what we're called to do. Rather, we're we're praying for a, a, a general inclination in Brent's heart and life that he would love Jesus more and follow in the way of righteousness and, and love Scripture and hate idolatry. I want that for my brother. I want that for all of you, my brothers and sisters. And so we pray for one another in that way. Uh, turn to Galatians 5. Flip back a few pages. Two great lists for us to be praying for one another there. Uh, look at verse 19, Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, bits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Okay, this, this is a sample list. This of sin. And, and if they don't repent of these sins, it will. this is the sin that leads to death if they do not repent of such sins. It keeps going. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says. So friends, use lists like this in your prayers for one another. Lord, I, I pray that you would keep my brothers and sisters from sexual immorality, from, from impurity, from sensuality, from divisions, from envy, 
drunkenness, things like these. And then we continue praying. Look at the second list in verse 22. I, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters that their lives and their marriage and their family would be characterized by love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Pagans pray. Uh, pagans pray things like, Lord, I pray that you would provide this job. I pray that you would get, let little Johnny get into University of Maryland. I, I pray that you would get us through this time. I pray that you would take away this disease. P pagans pray those things. What's the difference between pagan prayer and Christian prayer? Well, Christian prayer is according to the Bible. We value what God values. We pray according to his will. And Christians pray for other Christians, that other Christians would continue to walk according to God's will. And so I said, I want to pray more in 2023. I want to pray like this, according to God's will for you, and to pray that you would pray for each other. We need it, don't we? Let me use myself as an example. I need your prayers. If I am going to endure to the end and not give way to idolatry and foolishness and pride and all sorts of heinousness, I need you to pray for me. The only thing that will sustain me to the end is the grace of God and the grace of God given in response to his people's prayers. I said to my wife a week or two ago, I said, babe, you gotta pray for me. I would be sustained in the faith. The church's prayers are like the life support system that keeps our faith alive. So saints, we need to pray for one another. The temptations are too strong for us. Our flesh is too weak. That's true of me, that's true of all of your elders, that's true of you. Satan is too wily. We need to pray for one another. And these first two assurances of eternal life are built on a third. Number three, Christ protects us who have been born of him and belong to him. This is the ground of everything that's come before it, a good description of the beginning of eternal life. Look at verse 18 again. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, that is Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are born of, we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Uh, you can go back to listen to the sermons at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 where we thought about what it means to be born of God. It, it, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Being born of God. Think, think, of, think of a first birth you have a water breaking and a, a bursting forth and a new life, right? Just this glorious, glorious picture. 
members of Chevrolet Baptist Church, you have been born of God in that way, into newness of life. The Spirit has created you and delivered you. You have burst forth into new life through the Spirit of God. And so you've begun to fight against sin. You do not want sin to rule over you. You've been tempted by sin, but you have experienced God's protection of you in that sin. You know that. You might feel discouraged by the sins you committed, continue to commit. I feel such discouragement at time, but we know He keeps us and He will continue to keep us because He's more powerful than our sin, finally. The world doesn't know this. The, the, the world, it says, rests in the power of the evil one. They love their sin. have not been born again. Brothers and sisters, you have been born again. And verse 20, he's, he's giving you an understanding of who he is. This, this is not cause for arrogance in you because you didn't have the power to apprehend who he is. He gave it to you so that you have the power to apprehend, to know who he is. You know that Jesus Christ is the true God. You know that Jesus Christ is eternity. The verse says, if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, thank you for coming. I wonder how the metaphor of a new birth or born again strikes you. It might sound a little strange. Let, let me try to convince you it's actually quite beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's a picture of, of changing an ugly thing into a beautiful thing, like a, like a caterpillar into a butterfly. You've probably heard that example given. It's, it's the picture of a selfish and cynical man turning into a self-sacrificial and loving man. If, if you've read or seen Les Miserables, you know that story of Jean Valjean, right? Ugliness turned into self-sacrificing beauty. It's the beauty of you and I becoming little by little the perfect versions of ourselves, the cells for which we were created. That's what it means to be born again. You becoming what you were created to be. Do you not want that? I want that. A non-Christian friend, you might realize that you're not that version yet. You might realize that you've sinned against God and you've sinned against other people. You and I are not what we are, were created to be. That the thing is, though, there is so much remarkable, amazing potential in you. And I want you to know that potential for which you were created. And the way you know that potential for which you are created is you look to Jesus Christ who came and perfectly submitted himself to God's law. And by perfectly submitting himself to God's law, he perfectly ruled over himself. And even as the world threw all that it had at him, he still perfectly obeyed the Father and lived up to his fullest potential, one might say. Kind of downplayed even. And in so doing, he went to death on a cross and saved a people for himself, rising again. Talk about a new birth. In fact, 
Scripture calls it the first fruits of a new birth, the first fruits of a whole new creation, a creation that lives up to its potential. In which as you and I step into it, we step into eternity and we step into living up to our fullest potential, that very thing for which God created us. Is that not a beautiful thing? Is that not what your heart longs for? That means letting go of your own will. That means putting your trust in Christ. That means repenting even today, following after him. Jesus Christ is true. Jesus Christ is eternal life. You cannot fix yourself, brothers and sisters, non-Christian friends. We, we can't keep all 65 New Year's resolutions. And frankly, the hundreds, if not thousands of other resolutions we should be keeping, we cannot do that. Yet if you'll loosen your grip and stop trying to prove yourself, you will find a forgiving and sweet, all-compassionate Savior who lived for you and died for you if you would only turn to Him. Now, brothers and sisters in the church, I trust I have not told you anything from these verses new. I trust you have heard all of this before. But amidst all the distractions and temptations of last week and this coming week, Amidst all the resolutions you might want to undertake for the new year, I want to remind you of this most important thing. You have eternal life. Your life is of eternal significance and consequence. You can talk to God and He hears you because you have stepped into eternity. You're playing for that league now. It's a higher league, and you're a part of it. The game is being played for you. And notice John's final charge in verse 21. Kind of a strange way to end the book. It almost feels like an afterthought. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's like, it's like the parent has given the kid a long speech before they go off to college, and now the kid, they give each other hugs, and the kid's walking out the door. And then one last call, don't do anything stupid. Or I think of that scene in Princess Bride. They're leaving, have fun storming the castle. It's just kind of a last thought to get it out there, right? That's what he's saying. It's a crucial word though, isn't it? How easily our idols, the things that we're tempted to worship, distract us from who we are and distract us from who Christ is. Idolatry is utterly unbecoming of the eternal life, brothers and sisters, that we possess. It's utterly becoming of our New Year's resolution. Know that you have eternal life. Don't give yourself to idols. Like, stupid, stupid, don't do that. You have eternal life. It's yours, brothers and sisters. What is your New Year's resolution? Walking out, I have eternal life. I'm going to know that. I'm going to live into that. I can talk to him. He hears me. I can pray for them, preserve them from sin, even as they're 
praying for me and preserving him because we belong to him. We've been born of him. Eternity is ours. Let's pray. Father God, we give you praise. We, we, we marvel. Since your son to live the life we couldn't and to die the death we should so that we might have life and you've caused us, even as he was raised up from the grave, you have caused us to be born up from the grave of the condemnation of our sins and death. And so that we have you now, Lord Jesus. Help us to walk in you and abide in you, to pray to you, to pray for one another. We pray all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.